Welcome to the Vitality Radio Podcast, your source for the truth about health, wellness, and real alternatives to drugs, surgeries, and the status quo of healthcare. Here, you'll find information that empowers you to take control of your health. But it's not just about health and wellness, it's about the politics of healthcare and protecting your health freedom. Now, here's your host, Jared St. Clair. Fevers are our friends. Yes, that is right. In fact, by fighting back fevers, we may be increasing the length of the illness or infection. We may be prolonging it and making it worse and potentially even allowing it to become more dangerous to the point of even a higher risk of fatality from certain illnesses. That's what we'll talk about in the rant today on Vitality Radio. My name is Jared St. Clair. It's good to be with you again on another episode of Vitality Radio. I'm going to talk about some research I've been doing that I was going to present to you in full this week, but my gosh, the topic is so deep and so vast that I need more time to give it to you the way that I like to give it to you. So I'm going to tiptoe into it today and uh, give you some really great information, but I'll be setting you up for probably a two-show run talking about this, and you're going to be interested, I believe. If you have any interest in your health at all, which you must if you're listening to this show, I think you're going to be really, really excited about what's coming up. I'll go into that in just a moment. Vitality Radio, always brought to you by Vitality Nutrition in Bountiful. My family-run health and nutrition store has been there for 44 years serving you. We are happy to help you with all of your health and nutrition needs at Vitality Nutrition, 107 South, 500 West in Bountiful. It does not matter if you're anywhere near Bountiful. If you are within the sound of my voice, You are within reach of our help at Vitality Nutrition. Just give us a call, 801-292-6662. That's 801-292-6662. Okay, so I uh, hinted to what I'll be talking about uh, next week and probably the week after that as well. And it's an interesting topic, and it deserves a tremendous amount of focus, I believe, based on the sheer number of people who are medicated with these medicines. And that is some of the most recent research, starting in about 2008-ish and running up to this very day, on antidepressants. Antidepressants and their potential for misuse, uh, over-prescribing of antidepressants, according to some researchers, and the placebo effect, as it is associated with antidepressants, and what the long-term potential negatives could be. But along with that, as I always do on Vitality Radio, I'll be talking about alternatives and things that you can do, not necessarily supplemental. I actually believe that some of the most important things for depression are lifestyle changes, which we'll go into as well. And that's part of the reason why this is probably going to be a two-episode thing, because there's a lot of information to share. I'll talk about some lifestyle things. I'll talk about some supplemental things. I'll talk about some dietary things, and I'll talk about why it's something that you may want to consider and discuss with your medical uh, professional. So that will be next week and the week after on Vitality Radio. This week, what I've decided to do is this week in Vitality Nutrition on 
both Tuesday and Wednesday, actually Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday now that I think about it, as well as last week, I've had a bunch of similar questions uh, come to me about some things that are either in the news right now or are very popular right now when it comes to supplementation or are things that people wanted clarification from previous episodes of Vitality Nutrition where maybe I skimmed through it a little bit too quickly. One of the things that I struggle with with Vitality Radio, frankly, is that it's a condensed amount of time that I have here, about 53 minutes to record, uh, and that is not enough for someone who likes to talk as much as I do. And uh, sometimes not enough to give you all the research that I've done to prepare the show. So sometimes I end up skimming through things a little faster than I would like to. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go over four different topics that I've been getting a lot of questions about, a couple of which have to do with previous shows and a couple are just things that are out there in the news right now. I'm going to go through those topics a little bit more uh in a more condensed way to give you the details that you need to make the decisions that you need to make in order to know if there are things that might be interesting to try for yourself. So we'll go into those things in just a moment. But of course, prior to that, I have to rant about something. And this is not something I haven't ranted about before. But what I love about this particular rant is the research that I've uncovered Going all the way back to 1971, and yet here we are in 2021, 50 years later, not really heeding what the research is telling us when it comes to fevers. So we're going to talk about that in a moment. Before I do that, I want to mention one more thing that I have mentioned uh, on previous episodes, but that I want to make sure you know about. I am doing podcast-only episodes now uh, pretty regularly. I've got three or four of them so far that haven't aired on the radio at all that are only available on the podcast. Uh, sometimes that's because they're uh, shorter than uh, the hour that I have here on uh, local radio. Sometimes it's because they're longer, an uh, hour and a half, two hours in some cases. And other times the content is maybe just uh, better in a podcast than on radio. So if, if you like Vitality Radio, you enjoy listening to me talk about these things that I'm so passionate about. If you go to the podcast itself, you'll be able to find some stuff that I have not been able to share on the radio. There's two that were recently released over the last couple of weeks, uh, conversations with uh, Dr. Polevsky and uh, Andre Angelantoni. I will be interviewing Dr. Peter McCullough, now, you may have heard of him. He's been all over the news. He's been on Fox News quite a bit. He's been interviewed all over the web about his views on what is happening with COVID-19. Dr. McCullough, I had the privilege of having dinner with him and hearing him speak in person just a couple of weeks ago at the Your Health Freedom Symposium. And he's been gracious enough to give me an hour of his time uh, on uh, this week. So this show that you're listening to, is coming out Saturday. I'm actually recording it on Thursday. Tomorrow morning, I'll be talking to Dr. McCullough, and that show hopefully will air uh, as a podcast-only episode next week. So uh, keep your eyes open for that. Got another one with Dr. 
Actually, two more doctors lined up uh, for two additional shows. So there's a lot of stuff happening on the podcast now that is not happening on the radio. I'd love to have you join me there. And without further ado, let's get into the vital rant. In a world full of often confusing messages about health, let Jared be your guide through the smoke screens of corporate greed, media bias, government ineptitude, and propaganda. When you see what is really happening, you'll be ranting too. It's time to expose the hidden agendas. It's time for the truth. It's time for the vital rant. Okay, so as I stated at the very beginning of the show, fevers are our friends. Now, I think... Perhaps the most concerning, the, the highest level of concern, let's say, with fevers come with small children, particularly with first-time parents, younger parents who haven't, uh, you know, it isn't, it's their first rodeo, so to speak, raising a child, and the fever gets up to 100, 101, 102, and they think, oh my gosh, we got to get them some Tylenol. So in the past, I've talked about Tylenol and the potential dangers. It's it's actually one of the more dangerous drugs on the market and one of the most used drugs on the market. And where it becomes very dangerous is that even if you just overdose on it a little bit, it can create major problems for the liver, including acute liver failure. In fact, it's the number one cause of acute liver failure in America above alcohol. And that's a big deal if you think about it. And it's not from people overdosing on it, like taking 10 when they should take two. It's from people taking three when they should take two, that sort of thing. So you can accidentally take too much Tylenol fairly easily, perhaps taking it more often than you should, misdosing it accidentally. I think this is very concerning for me with children's Tylenol, the one in the liquid form, because you got to measure that out. It's not as easy as a 500 milligram tablet. Now you're measuring out the milliliters, and if you, A, don't measure it right, or B, give it too often, you can actually overdose your child. Now, I'm not here to talk fear. Uh, That's not how I like to do anything in my life, but it is something you have to be very cautious with. But stepping back from Tylenol and just talking about fevers themselves is, I think, really, really important. As I was reading about the antidepressant topic that I mentioned earlier, I discovered something that I thought was really interesting because I've done rants on fevers before. I'm a big, big believer that that God gave us the fever. And yes, that rhymed and it was totally unintentional, but it's kind of cool. I might have to write a song. That God gave us the fever for the purpose of healing our bodies. And we know that the fever has that effect to some degree. We also know that fevers are uncomfortable. We know that fevers that get too high can be dangerous. And so there's, it's like a lot of things in the human body in which, you know, not having a fever would not be ideal to get over an infection in many cases, but having too high of a fever can be overkill. And so we do have to be a little bit cautious there. But most experts say that too high is like 105 plus, and very few people end up with fevers that high. Now, I'm not your doctor. 
I don't claim to be and I don't want to be. And so this is definitely a topic you may want to talk to your doctor about or potentially your uh, your uh, naturopathic doc if you go to more of an alternative type of a doctor or your uh, pharmacist even in terms of what their opinion is on how high a fever is too high and for what length of time and so on and so forth. Because you certainly don't want to just ignore that fever and not take the temperature and just assume everything's okay because in some cases, I would say rare cases, it's not. And it's good to know where you're at with that. But there's been a lot of information shared with a lot of, I'll say, more alternative, you know, herbalists, homeopaths, naturopaths, and so on and so forth saying, hey, let the fever do its job. And that's pretty common coming from my side of things. However, what I loved about this research paper that was actually on NCBI, that's the uh, government's uh, website for uh, uh, the CDC, there are a couple of researchers who did a lot of research into what we've learned about fevers over the years. And as I said, this research dates all the way back to 1971. And I'm going to read it basically verbatim. It's not very long, but I, I love how it's put. And I think the value of every word matters here. It is a principle of evolutionary medicine that the disruption of adaptive processes will degrade biological functioning. That's according to Nessie and Williams from 1994. It's a principle of evolutionary medicine that the disruption of adaptive processes will degrade biological functioning. In other words, getting in the way of what the body normally wants to do. For instance, a growing body of evidence indicates that fever is an evolutionary ancient adaptation for coordinating immune responses to infection. That's according to Kluger et al. in 1997, Hasday in 2000, Bladius in 2003, and Oppenheimer in 2005. So we have a lot of evidence that that's the case. Studies in humans have shown that the disruption of fever with fever-reducing medications has a number of adverse effects on the immune system. Uh, or on the immune response, sorry. In controlled experiments, fever-reducing medication lengthens the time it takes the body to clear non-fatal infections, such as rhinovirus or the common cold, or varicella zoster, also known as chickenpox. And that's according to studies that were done in 1975, 1989, and 1990 by Stanley, Duran, and Graham et al. So we know that at least in those two cases, the common cold and chickenpox, the research shows that you can increase the length of the illness by treating the fever, not letting the fever treat you. Acetaminophen, also known as Tylenol, also increased the duration of illness in malaria infections in an experimental paradigm that uh, Brantz et al. did in 1997. In patients with more serious infections, such as bacterial sepsis, correlation studies commonly find fever is associated with increased survival. Now, that's important to understand, and, and I'm going to state it again. In more serious infections, such as bacterial sepsis, correlation studies, not causation, okay, but correlation studies commonly find fever is associated with increased survival rates. And the first study on that that they cite is from 1971, but they also cite studies from 78, 83, 80, 2007-2009. That's a lot of studies showing that at least correlationally speaking, a fever increases survival in something like sepsis. 
I think that's very, very important because we seem to want to control things with medicine so much rather than letting the body do what it does really, really well more often than not. And by doing so, we may actually be getting in the way of a normal process and potentially creating harm as opposed to good. And remember, that increased survival with sepsis was people who had used acetaminophen in malaria had a higher level of duration. People who did not use acetaminophen when it comes to sepsis had increased survival rates. There has been little experimental research on the mortality effects of fever-reducing medicine therapy in humans with serious infections. So we don't know a ton about what happens with the serious infections. But in a preliminary analysis of another experiment where acetaminophen was administered to trauma patients close to the onset of fever, 7 out of 44, that's 16%, who received medication died, while only 1 out of 38, 3%, died in the group receiving no medication at all. Now, this is important to understand that not all studies equal what the headline seems to read. And I would say that that's more important now than ever, as we're hearing health information being uh, spewed over the airwaves like crazy by all kinds of people. So let's be clear on this. A preliminary analysis of another experiment with acetaminophen was administered to or sorry, where acetaminophen was administered to trauma patients close to the onset of fever, seven out of 44, that's 16% who received Tylenol died, while only one out of 38, 3% of people died in the group receiving no medication. Now, the difference was not quite statistically significant. First off, it's a small group. Second, we're talking about a preliminary analysis, not a complete study anyway. However, the university's ethics review board had originally granted a waiver of informed consent based on the assumption that there was minimal risk involved. And when they got these preliminary results, they, that, they strongly suggested that the assumption was erroneous, meaning that, oh, maybe there is a much higher risk of administering Tylenol than we ever thought before. So they canceled that study because they were worried ethically that they may actually be causing more harm from the study uh, than... Uh, was worth the study results. So I'm going to take this back to my basic philosophy of health. And it's really, really simplistic. I'm going to just tell you that right up front. It's super scientific in its simplicity because most of what I'm about to say has absolutely been proven, or at least we have excellent evidence pointing uh, to proof. And that is this, that the body wants to maintain homeostasis. It wants to be healthy. It wants everything to be in balance. It would like to produce the right amount of hormones at the right times. It would like to clear infection from the body when infection occurs. It would like to do all of those things to heal itself because that's how the body is programmed. That's why we have an innate immune system and an acquired or adaptive immune system. And that's why all of this talk that's going on right now with COVID, a lot of it is about antibodies, right? And it's about herd immunity, lifelong immunity versus short-term immunity, and so on and so forth. And the reason that that happens in nature with someone who gets COVID or chickenpox or the measles or whatever, you name the, 
the virus, they build a immune response to that virus, which is why people don't get chicken pox twice as a general rule or measles or so far anyway, uh, COVID-19 for the most part. And that doesn't mean it never happens, but it means that it's very, very rare because the body has adapted then to that viral intruder. And if that's the case, then we have to recognize that the body is always making the effort to make itself whole. And that fever is exactly the same as the antibody thing in that the body is saying, okay, I have a problem. There's an infection that I need to get rid of. And one of the ways I'm going to do that is to raise my body temperature and get rid of it that way. That's part of the process of that. And when we step in the way of the body's natural process through medication, and I, and in this case, you can lower a fever a variety of different ways. You don't have to use Tylenol. You can use a tepid bath. You can use uh, certain herbs to lower a fever and so on. And if you're needing to lower a fever, I would prefer those methods, certainly over Tylenol, because of the risks that I described earlier. And that's how I would do it. But I would say the vast majority of the time, you're better off to just let the fever run its course. Let the body do what it does best because it knows better how to heal itself than you do. And I believe that to be the case 100%. Now, again, I'm not your doctor. I'm not a medical expert. I'm a guy who does a lot of research and works a lot with individuals on helping them become healthier. That's what I do. But sometimes we just have to get back to the basics of nature and common sense. And common sense says that we don't have to rely on an outside source in many cases for the body to correct whatever's wrong with it. Now, in lots of places, our diet, our stress level, our sleeping habits, our lack of intake of proper nutrition, enough water, and all these other things can short-circuit the body's natural processes to heal itself. We get in the way on our own lots of times without a drug or an herb or a vitamin or anything else. So you have to get out of your own way for sure. However, throwing more roadblocks in the way of the body doing its natural healing process, especially in the case of fever, in my opinion, can really be more harmful than it is helpful and sometimes you have to feel a little worse before you feel a little better. So all of what I've just discussed is absolutely my opinion, but it's also backed by a lot of research. Uh, these researchers have been studying this since 1971, and yet we're still reducing fevers when I believe in most cases those fevers don't need to be reduced. And again, there is the caveat of a very, very high fever, though we don't want those. And so everything within reason and moderate everything. We don't ever need to be extreme in any of these things. If you've got a fever of 107, you probably want to reduce that fever or 105 even. But that's where, again, you can talk to your qualified medical expert and uh, see what their opinion is on that. And you can do your own research and figure some things out for yourself as well. Okay, so that's the rant for today. I'm going to cut to a quick break. When I come back, I'm going to hit four topics, 
possibly five, depending on how much time we have, where I've had a lot of questions, a bunch of questions coming to me on a regular basis. People at Vitality are are asking these questions of me and my team there. And also, I'm going to give you a little update on something I did not know until I was researching for a talk I gave at the Your Health Freedom Symposium that I think is really important, and I want you to pay attention to it if you're taking a magnesium supplement. I'm going to go to a break. I'll be right back. My name is Jared St. Clair, and this is Vitality Radio. After decades of helping people with their nutritional supplement needs, I have observed something that seems almost universal. People seem to have a lot of products that they have experimented with. Some might have been recommended by a blog or online, others from a magazine article, and yet another by a friend or family member. Information is coming at us at a rapid pace nowadays, and everyone has an opinion. The problem is that there is only one really big wild card in health and nutrition, and that wild card is you. I know you've heard the infomercials, seen the ads, or talked to that neighbor who has that cure-all product that can do it all for your health. The problem is that supplement doesn't exist. What's right for your neighbor isn't always right for you. At Vitality Nutrition, we've been asking the right questions for years. What I mean by this is, we don't just sell supplements, we consult with our clients and ask them the key questions needed to make sure we match the right supplement to the right person. If you feel better about a team approach to your health, give us a call and one of our well-educated Vitality team members will answer your questions and help you find just what it is that you need to address your health concerns, naturally. You can reach us at 801-292-6662, that's 801-292-6662, or drop us an email, info at vitalityradiopod.com, that's info at vitalityradiopod.com. Welcome back to Vitality Radio. I'm your host each and every week. My name's Jared St. Clair. It's good to be with you again on another episode of Vitality Radio. We're talking about... Fevers. Well, just finished talking about that. We're going to talk about magnesium and the brain. We're going to talk about quercetin, if you've heard of that, or quercetin, depending on who you ask. What that is, because a lot of people are asking me, what the heck is this and why are people talking about it? We're going to talk about collagen and we're going to talk about estrogen. So those are the things that we're going to talk about today. These are all uh, things from previous episodes or just a bunch of questions that I'm having and I want to try and clear the air and get some information out there to you. Vitality Radio, always brought to you by Vitality Nutrition in Bountiful, 107 South, 500 West is where you can find us if you want to come physically, but we'd love to have you call our phone number if you're out of the area as well, 801-292-6662. That's 801-292-6662. And one more quick reminder, podcast-only episodes being released primarily on Wednesdays, a little bit sporadic for sure, but uh, we've got three up there that are exclusive podcast shows. And they are noted as such, and I've got a couple more coming very soon. I would love for you to join me on the Vitality Radio podcast on any of your favorite podcast apps or at vitalityradio.com. Okay, so back to it. Let's talk about magnesium. So I learned something that I did not know, and I love. One of the most fun parts of what I do is reading the new research and learning more about something that I thought I already knew a whole bunch about. And sometimes it's because I missed it and didn't know that that information was there. I just hadn't seen it. And other times it's brand new information that they've just discovered. 
One thing that I'll mention to you, because I think you'll be excited about this topic. I just talked the last two weeks about something known as psychobiotics. If you didn't hear those episodes, there's two of them. There's there's a weekend between them because of uh, my travel schedule. But psychobiotics sound uh, kind of terrifying, especially this close to Halloween. But all they are is they're probiotics that work on the brain. And they work with things like prevention of Alzheimer's and dementia and that kind of thing. But they also work in things that you can feel and see right away, like mental anxiety, stress, depression, those kind of things. And we have some really good clinical research on that. Well, I've been spending a lot of time researching probiotics over the last decade, probably almost exactly a decade when I really started digging deep into it. And that coincides pretty nicely with a lot of the new information coming out uh, in the microbiome project that has been funded by the federal government, also known as you and me. But that's one place where I'm kind of glad they spent my money because there's so many places that they spend my money that I wish they wouldn't. And I think you can concur with that. But uh, the Microbiome Project, tons of awesome information coming out of that, like fascinating stuff. And one of the things that's so fascinating and so powerful is how important those gut microbes are to the brain and mental health. ADD, ODD, PTSD, anxiety, depression, these are all areas of study with probiotics that they're now terming psychobiotics because they're finding that these specific strains can help with those issues. Well, I went to work on this probably a little over a year ago. I started sitting down and saying, you know what, I'm going to try and build the best probiotic I can build. And as some of you know, I, I developed my own formulas. I've been doing that for about 15 years now. And it's one of my favorite things that I get to do because you have to dig really deep into the research to come up with a really effective natural formula. And probiotics, my gosh, the research is so deep now and varied. And unfortunately, a lot of the research has been sponsored by specific companies uh, you know, to prove what their stuff does. That doesn't necessarily mean the research is bogus. It's certainly biased, <laughs> but sometimes bias doesn't necessarily add up to uh, being bogus. And when I see a specific brand talking about what their stuff can do, then what I try and find is more research that's not coming from a biased source that backs up what their research is showing. And that's what I've been able to do with Bacillus coagulans, Bacillus subtilis, uh, Bacillus sporogenus, uh, which is another name for the coagulans, and then also Saccharomyces boulardii, and uh, there's a couple of others as well. These probiotics are really, really unique. They do some awesome things inside the body for gut health, immune function, the brain, and so on. Well, I've developed a formula and it took forever thanks to COVID and the insanity of manufacturing things right now, but it's almost done. I'll be announcing it when you can get it, which I hope is only a week or two away. And uh, this is a formula that I built specifically for the purposes of helping people with the mental health side of things as much as it helps with the gut health side of things, because I think... Those things are so critically interrelated, as you'll notice if you listen to those episodes I did on psychobiotics. So this formula is really about both things, also uh, for autoimmune concerns and things like that. 
And it is a formula that I developed specifically to try to one up a product that I actually absolutely am completely in love with called Just Thrive, uh, which is a fantastic probiotic that we've been selling for years at Vitality Nutrition and having excellent success with. So we now have another alternative. Uh, it's a little stronger and actually a little less expensive. And by now, I mean in a week or two, we'll have it. Uh, and so we're just uh, anxiously awaiting its arrival. And when that's available, I'll get with you on that. And also, I'll talk to you about what we've learned about those probiotics and what led me to produce the formula in the way that it was produced. So it's it's exciting stuff for me, and I'm a geek about this stuff, as you probably already know. And that's okay because I love doing it. And uh, this new probiotic, I think, is going to work wonders for a lot of different things. I'm excited to start using it myself. All right. So back to that other topic. Let's go to magnesium. So are you taking a magnesium supplement? If you're not taking a magnesium supplement, I believe you probably should be. Now, not all of us are actually deficient in magnesium. However, if you've had a recent blood test and your doc said, yeah, magnesium's fine or didn't mention it, which is what usually happens, that's not a great indicator of whether or not your magnesium is fine at all. Because if, if there is magnesium on your blood test, which they don't always look for, 99% of the magnesium in the body is not found in the blood. It's found in the tissues of the body, primarily the muscle tissue and the cells and not in the blood. And as such, looking at magnesium levels in the blood doesn't give us a great indication of our magnesium need. What we do know is that subclinically, meaning it's not going to show up in a blood test, probably about 90% of us are deficient. And on average, that deficiency appears to be about three to 400 milligrams per individual. And that deficiency correlates uh, in a couple different ways. It correlates with the uh, amount of magnesium that our forefathers had about 100 to 150 years ago and beyond because of just dietary consumption of magnesium, which we get far, far less of thanks to modern farming practices and so on. We were getting about 600 milligrams a day. And now on average, we're getting like 260-ish for men and about 230 for women. So as you can see, we're well below that number, but also the researchers that I've been studying who have studied 41 different studies on magnesium show that 600 milligrams appears to be about the right amount for most people. And so that deficiency, what we were getting in our food naturally without a supplement back when food was grown the way it's supposed to be was about right. Now, unfortunately, Magnesium has become one of my vital five, meaning it's something that I believe most of us do need to supplement and is vitally important to the body, including 300 different enzymatic processes. So magnesium plays a big role. The problem is not all magnesium is created equally. And this isn't a brand name thing. This isn't a Kirkland brand versus Solaray or Nature's Way or whatever. This is a actual the type of magnesium itself, the actual raw material that's used. If it's magnesium oxide, and you can look under the supplement facts panel on your magnesium supplement, and if it's called magnesium oxide, then it is what is essentially a raw magnesium. This is a magnesium that is incredibly difficult for the body to break down and assimilate. So difficult that we only get about 4% of it. But here's the rub. And it's a big deal. And this is the part I did not know until very recently. 
Absorbing 4% of magnesium oxide actually makes us more deficient than we were before we took the supplement in the first place. Now, how is that possible? Because we're still getting 4%. That's not much, but it's some. Well, it's possible because what we don't absorb creates a laxative effect. And through that laxative effect, we lose electrolytes. And as we lose electrolytes, one of those electrolytes happens to be, you guessed it, magnesium. So we actually become more deficient with a magnesium supplement that is made from oxide. Now, if you need magnesium to to stave off constipation, sorry, to stay regular, that's the term I'm looking for. If you need magnesium for that purpose, that's great. Magnesium oxide will do the job, but you'll actually become more deficient as you go. So optimally, what you want to do is find a magnesium that will give you the balance that you need in terms of your gut if you deal with chronic constipation and also give you the magnesium that you need supplementally. So there are two forms of magnesium that I love. There's magnesium glycinate, that's G-L-Y-C-I-N-A-T-E, and magnesium threonate. Now, magnesium threonate is also known as magteen, M-A-G-T-E-I-N. Threonate is T-R-T-H-R-E-O-N-A-T-E, threonate. And I spell those because people always ask me, what did you say? So I want to make sure you can actually write that down. And so I apologize for skimming over that uh, the last time I talked about magnesium on Vitality Radio. But what's the difference between the three and eight and the glycinate? Well, first off, their bioavailability appears to be pretty equal. They're like 10 to 15 times as well absorbed as magnesium oxide. So there's a huge difference there. Do we waste some of it? Yes. We basically waste some of every supplement that we take. We never absorb all of it. But the absorption rate of those particular magnesiums is very, very high as oral magnesium supplements go. So that's the first thing. The difference between the glycinate and the threonate then shifts to two major differences, I guess. One, potency. You can get a lot more magnesium glycinate in one pill then you can magnesium threonate. And therefore, glycinate is easier to take, I'll say, because most people can take two to 400 milligrams a day, which is one to two of a soft gel capsule of magnesium glycinate. And they're going to do just fine with their magnesium needs. It's going to help with muscle cramps and tightness and stiffness in the muscles and cellular hydration and energy and sleep and stress levels and all those things that magnesium is so good at. But if you're worried about your brain, which as you know, if you listen to this show on a regular basis, I am very worried about my brain due to some family history of uh, dementia and Parkinson's and things like that. Then magnesium 3 and 8 steps to the forefront because magnesium 3 and 8 is the only form of magnesium that's been clinically proven to cross the blood-brain barrier. And that's a big deal because it actually gets into the brain in a significant quantity, enough that they can actually measure it in the cerebral spinal fluid. And that is significant for a variety of reasons. For me, what I've noticed is my focus is much, much better. I'm all over the place all the time mentally. I'm being pulled in a hundred different directions all because of me and how I live my life. Nobody else's fault. Uh, And I have a tough time focusing in. I have a hard time focusing on preparing this show. I have a hard time focusing on just about anything. That's just kind of how my brain is. I'm not unintelligent 
I'm like a lot of people that are diagnosed with things like ADD and that my brain works just fine. It just works on kind of hyperdrive all the time. Well, magnesium seems to calm that down. And that has been a real blessing since I've moved over to magnesium three and eight. I tend to remember why I walked in the next room. More often, I tend to remember names better than I was. And I absolutely seem to be able to prepare Vitality Radio much quicker than I used to be able to. I think it's shaved a couple hours off of each of my weeks just in that I can stay on task better. So it's been phenomenal. But I was talking to my dear friend and colleague, Jen, and uh, she has not so much the focus problem that I have, but more of the mental anxiety problem. She struggles with uh, things kind of getting on her mind and having a hard time getting them off and cyclical thinking and things like that. And she's found that the magnesium three and eight has helped her in that way. And of course, those are anecdotal things. That's me and her. It's not you. But the clinical studies on this are really, really strong. What they've actually shown is that uh, an 86% reduced risk in an Australian cohort of 1,400 elderly people, 86% reduced risk of developing mild cognitive impairment, a form of dementia or uh, lack of a mild cognitive impairment is going to be kind of the early stages of dementia and Alzheimer. 86% reduced risk in 1,400 elderly people between 60 and 80 years old, or sorry, 60 and 72. That's big. In Japan, they had a 74% reduced risk in Japanese men and women older than 60 years of developing vascular dementia and 37% reduced risk of developing all-cause dementia. In fact, Dr. Bredesen, who if you, you don't know who he is, look up my episode that I did with Dr. Bredesen. He and I discussed this and I asked him, okay, so what are the key supplements for brain health? And the first thing that he spit out was magnesium three and eight. And this is the only clinician that I'm aware of in the world who has actually reversed active Alzheimer's disease in humans. That's a major, major accomplishment. And he's a huge believer in magnesium three and eight. He also developed a formula that's a fantastic companion with magnesium three and eight called NeuroQ. Now, NeuroQ does not have the magnesium in it, but it has some of the other key elements that he show, he has shown in his research to assist in cognitive function right now in terms of memory and things like that, but also to assist in prevention of Alzheimer's disease and vascular dementia. So really, really interesting stuff. The magnesium three and eight, I'm a big, big fan. And the biggest thing that I want you to take out of this is, is if you are a magnesium person, someone who supplements with magnesium, I'll say, check and see if you've got oxide. Because if you've got oxide or if you've got magnesium carbonate or something like that, it's not what you need. And you're not getting the magnesium that you need. And you're probably actually creating a bigger deficiency. So look for glycinate. Uh, chelate is a decent form. If you've got chelate, you can use that up. I would still recommend moving to glycinate or three and eight. The biggest advantage of glycinate is simply you can take less of it and it's a little less expensive than three and eight. The disadvantage is it doesn't have that power, uh, of crossing the blood brain barrier and working in the brain for mental cognition, things like that. One more thing I'll leave you with the magnesium three and eight thing is that it only took 12 days in one study to see a substantial improvement in cognitive function. 12 days. That is awesome. So hopefully that clarifies some things on the magnesium because I have a lot of people ask me, you know, which kind was it that you said? Was it, it was like tree or three or so, and, and, you know, well, there's another one you mentioned and which one's for the brain and so on and so forth. So oxide is not for anyone. 
unless you're using it as a laxative. And then you should still be supplementing with another magnesium to make sure you're getting enough. Glycinate is kind of the middleman. It does the job in the body. It, there's some magnesium that will end up in the brain based on the research, but not much. And then threonate is kind of the king when it comes to the mental aspect of magnesium and why you would potentially want to use that. They've shown some really excellent, excellent uh, research in both humans as well as animals with that. Okay, next topic, quercetin or quercetin or quercetin. I've heard it said lots of different ways. It doesn't really matter. It's Q-U-E-R-C-E-T-I-N and it's in the news and first off, I want to just preface this with the fact that everything having to do with COVID-19 is controversial, right? Uh, to vaccinate or not to vaccinate, to mask or not to mask, to lockdown or not to lockdown, uh, the booster or no booster, vitamin C and zinc and quercetin and hydroxychloroquine and NAC and ivermectin and all the stuff, right? There's so much stuff out there about COVID-19. And that's not what this conversation is about. Quercetin, we don't have great research on quercetin for COVID-19. What we do have is some pretty compelling evidence that quercetin probably works for most, if not all, coronavirus. So that can be the cold. It can be other types of flus. We know that back in 2003 with SARS-1, uh, that uh, where there were 26 uh, countries that uh, had SARS, uh, the first version, SARS-CoV-1 as opposed to CoV-2, uh, in 26 countries in 2003, that it was very effective as a broad-spectrum protection against SARS. So that's interesting because that's the closest relative of COVID-19. But again, we don't have research on COVID-19. What we do have is a lot of anecdotal evidence from doctors that say they're treating patients uh, with quercetin uh, for COVID-19, but there are no double-blind studies or any of that kind of stuff. There's a Dr. Zelenko, Vladimir Zelenko, who has a protocol that a lot of people have read about online. And he's been bashed pretty hard for this uh, because he is a proponent of hydroxychloroquine, which, of course, was something Donald Trump was talking about. And, of course, everything that Donald Trump ever said has been demonized. And I will say that half the stuff he said I didn't agree with and half the stuff he said, and it's probably not really 50-50, but some of the stuff he said I agree, other stuff not so much. And a lot of what he said about COVID I disagreed with. That being said, what we do know is that quercetin has a similar... Uh, effect on the mineral zinc, as does hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. And that's why it's in the news is because people can't get HCQ, they can't get ivermectin, but they can get quercetin if they're lucky, because it's pretty hard to find right now too. And why does that matter? Well, quercetin on its own, we've sold it at Vitality Nutrition for years, and primarily we've sold it as an antihistamine. It's great for seasonal allergies and things like that, like really effective for a lot of people. And that's awesome. It's also uh, been shown to help with type 2 diabetes and circulatory dysfunction. Uh, it's good for chronic inflammation because it is a natural anti-inflammatory. But also they found that it works within the immune system and may help to control viral replication. Uh, that's according to some research that was done prior to COVID-19. They also show that zinc, which we know clinically, there's a ton of evidence that zinc is great for 
other forms of coronavirus, as well as just generally helping to prevent viral replication in the body. We know that. And so a lot of doctors uh, have been recommending zinc uh, during this pandemic, but it's been recommended for the common cold and the flu and things like that for years and years and years. So what is it about quercetin and zinc that wraps the two together? Well, that is because quercetin acts as a and what they call an ionosphere uh, for zinc, which is the same mechanism, again, that hydroxychloroquine uh, has with zinc, and that is to pass the cell wall and get the zinc into the cell where it can then help to halt viral replication. Now, again, I want to make sure that this is clear. I'm not your doctor and I'm not prescribing anything here, but we've had so many questions on it at Vitality Nutrition that I wanted to explain why people are talking about it, what they're using it for, and how it differs from the pharmaceuticals that people are hearing about. Because there's so much confusion and misinformation out there when it comes to COVID-19 and a lot of information that's being censored. And a lot of what's coming across in mass media is not well, it's spun a lot, we'll say, and a lot of stuff that's coming uh, from independent media is confusing people because it's being censored and blacklisted and all kinds of other things. So there's there's so much confusion. I just wanted to try and clarify quercetin on Vitality Radio and why people are using it and why some doctors are recommending it right now uh, as either a prophylactic measure or uh, as something that could be potentially a treatment. Now, the FDA, the CDC, they don't recognize quercetin as a either one, a treatment or a prophylactic measure, and your doctor may or may not think that it is. And it's one that uh, you could certainly talk to your medical professional about, as I am not that. But uh, I, again, I just wanted to clarify that and get you that information. What Dr. Zelenko is saying is that you use the vitamin C and the zinc and the quercetin together, and that gives you a uh, excellent chance at uh, fighting off um, a variety of different types of coronavirus. So uh, there you go. That's what quercetin is. Uh, one of the things I will say that I like about quercetin is it's got a long track record of being kind of generally good for you anyway. It's very... Uh, synergistic with vitamin C, clearly synergistic with with zinc, and um, it doesn't really have any known side effects. The primary benefit is that it's anti-inflammatory, and most disease is inflammatory in nature anyway. So quercetin has some nice benefits uh, without having a bunch of side effects associated with it. It's not crazy expensive to use either. So it's it's something that uh, I can understand why people why it's in demand and and frankly pretty hard to get right now. Um, and so that's what's, that's what the quercetin thing is about. If you have more questions, you can give us a call at Vitality, 801-292-6662. Okay. Uh, the last thing I'm going to hit here is collagen. Uh, collagen is in the news a lot right now. It's, it's now available at Costco. Didn't used to be available at Costco. Once something's available at Costco, you know what I know? I know that it's been written up in a bunch of magazines and it's all over Instagram because that's how things end up in Costco when it comes to supplements. They, they have a very minimal selection of supplements at Costco. And so what they do carry are the, the very most popular things. And now collagen is on that list, which means it's hit the big time. So is it worth it? And is it good for you? And do I suggest it? And maybe even do I use it myself? I don't always tell you what I use and don't use, and that's okay. But I have decided 
just recently that I'm going to add. I am going to add collagen to uh, my list of supplements that I use. I believe my regimen will consist of a scoop and a half of uh, collagen every night before bed because that gives me nine grams, at least of the collagen I'm going to tell you about uh, from a company called Life Flow here in Utah, actually. Uh, I'll take nine grams before I go to bed because clinically they've shown that it's fantastic for muscle recovery and actually fat metabolism while you sleep, believe it or not, there's excellent evidence of that. But it also is really, really great for the gut. It's great for the joints. Uh, it is phenomenal for the skin. There are a lot of reasons why people are using collagen. Now, most of the research shows anywhere from about two and a half grams up to about 12 grams is an effective dose. And it helps with, this is all based on research with humans, okay? Skin dryness, uh, significant increase in skin elasticity, less depth in wrinkles in the face. Um, pretty impressive stuff. And that can be even down all the way down to about uh, two and a half, three grams a day. But a lot of the best research, it was done on higher doses, like I say, nine, 10, 12 grams a day. Uh, over a 24-week period with 73 athletes, uh, they experienced significant decrease in joint pain while walking and at rest compared with the group that did not take it at all. Another study showed that uh, after taking collagen for 70 days, those who took collagen had a significant reduction in joint pain and were better able to engage in physical activity than those who did not take it. And then uh, for its pain-relieving uh, benefits, most of the research does indicate that you need to get it higher up 8 to 12 grams, which is why I'll be taking that scoop and a half-ish, 9, 10 grams a night uh, starting this weekend, actually, is when I've decided because I was going to do <laughs> I was going to add it a couple months ago, and I haven't gotten around to it, but I need to do it because, uh, gal, I'm going to be 50 and uh, I need all the help I can get. Uh, and then also bones. Studies have shown that it helps to increase bone density in women, even at about five grams a day. And uh, it has just all kinds of benefits when it comes to the structure of the body. So the bones, the joints, the ligaments, the tendons, the muscle, really, really awesome stuff. Uh, good quality collagen is the key because whenever anything gets hot, it gets touted by everybody and then everybody starts to make it. Well, I believe that you can always do better uh, than uh, what the basic stuff is out there, we'll say. And so make sure you're looking for one that comes from grass-fed cattle. Uh, that's important. Uh, organic is even better. And make sure that you're getting one that doesn't have a bunch of crap in it along with the collagen. Collagen should be very, very simple. Just collagen. You can get flavored stuff if you want, but it doesn't really taste like much. So just get the pure stuff. We have one by a company called Life Flow. Like I say, they're here in Utah and we sell it for $20 for 60 servings. So for me, it'll be a 45 day supply for 20 bucks. So it's not even expensive to use. And there's all kinds of primary benefits and side benefits that I'm excited about. So just wanted to clarify that as well. And I have bumped up against my window of time. It is time for me to let you go. One quick reminder, I'll be talking to Dr. Peter McCullough. Tomorrow, I'm interviewing him for a show that should air on a podcast only next Wednesday. That'll be the 13th, I believe, of October. 
Can't wait for you to hear that interview. He is fascinating, and I think you can learn a lot from him. He is just, uh, boy, one of the most educated docs I've met on the current stuff that's going on out there. So Dr. Peter McCullough, if you've already heard him before, uh, you'll be excited to hear this. It'll release in uh, less than a week here on Vitality Radio, assuming everything goes off well. Tomorrow also, stay tuned for the new Precision Probiotic from... uh, me. I developed it. I've been working on it for over a year. It's based on a ton of my own research, but mostly research done by some really, really excellent professionals in the category of microbiome studies. And uh, I can't wait to share it with you and explain to you what it does and how it works and why it works and all that kind of stuff as soon as it is available in the next couple of weeks. Okay, I'm going to let you go. Thank you so much for listening to me. Vitality Radio, always brought to you by Vitality Nutrition in Bountiful at 107 South, 500 West. If you're not near Bountiful, that's okay. You call us at 801-292-6662. That is 801-292-6662. We'll be happy to help you out there. I'm Jared St. Clair, and this has been another episode of Vitality Radio. been listening to the vitality radio podcast enjoy your week in the meantime jared will be feverishly searching for the latest nutrition info to educate you on and wading into mounds of propaganda to help steer you through it vitality radio is researched and written by jared st Clair, produced by elizabeth joy windham with very limited help from jared our awesome music is by brian bob young Support Vitality Radio by subscribing and giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or your favorite podcast source. Don't forget to follow us at Vitality Radio on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Please let us know your thoughts about this episode by using the hashtag Vitality Radio Podcast. And if you like what you hear, go tell somebody with a share, a screenshot, or an airdrop. Thank you. Hello, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Vitality Radio. Just a reminder that this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast has not been evaluated by the FDA. This podcast is provided with the understanding that the information shared is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This podcast is not a substitute for professional care by a medical professional. Thank you.